Now, the most awkward speaking gig I've ever had, or the most unprepared I've ever felt at a speaking gig, happened at a chapel that I was invited to at a elementary school. Now, elementary school is not my type of crowd to begin with. Uh, most of my time preaching is spent filtering jokes that are probably not appropriate. Um, so the elementary group is not always, you know, geared up for me. I, you know, happenstance tend to use bigger words than I should and things like that and kind of talk to myself. And so I'd really spent a lot of time preparing, like dumbing down my material for these elementary kids. And I get there, it's a, it's a private school. I was invited by a friend to come do a chapel there. And when I show up, I see that the parking lot is full which is unusual because elementary schoolers don't drive. I don't know, last I checked, and so I don't know why the parking lot was so full. And I pulled up, and people were parking, getting out of their cars, and, and not trying to like racially profile anything. But I noticed just about 100% of the people who were parking out in the cars were parents, and they were parents of color. They were African-American, black parents. And so, you know, I'm hoping at best, maybe there was some teacher who said something insensitive, and so there's like a meeting to be like, hey, we're sorry about this. I'm like, at worst, if they're all showing up from my chapel, something wasn't told to me about what my chapel was supposed to be about. And so I walk in to the school, I see the guy who invited me down the hall, he's walking toward me with what can only be described as a look of horror and apology and embarrassment. And before I could even open my mouth, he says, I am so sorry, which is never a good thing for the organizer of an event to tell you when you arrive. He says, I totally forgot today's Martin Luther King Jr. Day. And we've been advertising an assembly about Martin Luther King Jr. for weeks. And I was like, what do you mean advertising? Like, just kind of like word of mouth. Some people was like, We've been sending people mail about a guest speaker who's going to come and talk about Martin Luther King Jr. Do you think you could fit that into your sermon? I'm like, well, this is why they pay me the big bucks. So here's a scene that the kids are worshiping. It's elementary school, so we've got like dance videos on the screen, and they're doing the movements. And I'm in the back of the auditorium, literally back against the wall, on Wikipedia on my iPhone looking at Martin Luther King Jr., um, just to make sure I have some facts straight. And so the sermon was going to be really simple out of uh, a psalm that I picked. It was basically God loves you, right? Even if no one else does, if you're bullied, if you're picked on, if things are hard at, fan, at home, God still loves you. And also God wants you to love other people, especially the people who need to be loved because maybe they don't get as much love as other people. And I, like a pro, fit Martin Luther King Jr. into there. So I'm speaking, we're talking about the psalm, I'm I'm talking to the kids, and I'm like, God loves you, each and every one of you, even if you don't have a lot of friends, even if you're bullied on, picked on, even if things are tough for you at home. And you know who else loved people who were bullied and picked on and separated? Martin Luther King Jr. And God wants you, every one of you, to love other people, especially the people who are bullied and picked on and separated out. And you know who else wants you to do that as well? <laughs> Martin Luther King Jr. And I nailed it. And afterwards, I was talking with a friend, and we figured out there's not much in the Bible that you can't really end with a phrase, also Martin Luther King Jr., right? <laughs> Joseph had a dream. You know who else had a dream? <laughs> Martin Luther King Jr., <laughs> David committed adultery. You know who else committed? Uh, we'll, go, we'll go there. 
I'll tell you this, you all know the feeling, I'm sure, of being unprepared for something. Being unprepared for a public speaking event that's been advertised unbeknownst to you is not a great feeling. Um, I've found that as a Christian, as someone who is called to follow Christ and to be as Christ-like as possible in my daily interactions, in the way I talk, in the way I relate to other people, that I am most unprepared to be a Christian when I am in the least amount of prayer. I found that that's the, the best gauge for whether I'm prepared for the day whether I'm prepared for that conversation or if I'm prepared for that meeting or if I'm prepared for that relationship, is how much prayer have I been in? What's the quality of my prayer life like? We've been going through the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5 through 7, and for the next two weeks, we're going to be talking about prayer. Um, and, and we'll see Jesus give lots of instructions, not only about what not to do when we pray, but also how to pray um, and instructions about praying in general. So if you have your scriptures, open up with me to Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6 as Jesus begins his teaching on prayer. We'll do the first bit this morning and, and continue on with it next week. We'll read Matthew 6 verse 5 through 8. Matthew 6 verse 5 through 8. This is Jesus teaching, and he says this, When you pray, you must not be like, be like, be like, be like, the, like the hypocrites, for they love to stand in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they, they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. Remember, this is the theme for this section, right? There's three things Jesus is going to talk about. We've already talked about giving to the needy. Now he's talking about prayer. He'll soon be talking about fasting. For all three of them, our first verse in this chapter, chapter 6, verse 1, gives us our thesis. Beware of doing things in public in order to be seen, because then you'll lose your reward from the Father. This is what he's saying here about praying in public. In verse 6, But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. So much packed into just a few verses here. I want to point out here, again, we see the main point, don't bring attention to yourself when you're praying, um, and we'll get there. But I want to point out that Jesus says, just like when He, says, um, when he talks about giving to the needy, He says, when you give to the needy, do this or don't do this, do this or don't do this. And he says the same for prayer. He says, when you pray, notice he does not say, if you pray. Jesus, like many, assumes that prayer is going to be a part of what it means to be a child of God. That to be a child of God means that you will be a people of prayer. Pray, praying in general has kind of a transcended cultures and religions and times. People of, of all cultures, people of all times, people of all religions have always attempted to kind of cross the divide and, 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 and find the, the transcendent in prayer, um, reaching out with words and, and with groans and with feelings to try to connect with something outside of themselves. And prayer has always seemingly been the heartbeat of what is a relationship with God in the Scriptures. We're commanded to pray um, often throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament. Jesus himself models this for us. Jesus in the Gospels is nothing if he's not a person of prayer. Especially if you read through Luke's Gospel, just start to finish, you'll notice there's one thing Jesus does consistently. 
he gets up, goes somewhere by himself, and prays. And it's so consistent that his disciples kind of know where he goes and can go get him if they need him. But he'll get up, walk to a solitary place, and pray. This is one of the reasons Jesus, also he's God, but is so close to his Father. He's in constant communication with his Father. He's constantly filled up by the Spirit through the time that he spends with his Father. Before every big decision Jesus makes, before every big moment in his life that occurs to Jesus, he is in prayer. At its lowest prayer, which is basically talking to God, is like shouting into the void, hoping that someone hears you. Think of like maybe a, you know, the saying, there's no atheist in a foxhole or someone in an extreme circumstance, near-death experience, where, where they, they cry out to God. And maybe they believe, maybe they don't, but, but they're just kind of crying out, hoping someone's out there, and someone will hear, and someone will respond. I think that's kind of the lowest prayer is. At its highest, prayer is something that turns from an act, which is communication, into an experience. At the highlight of prayer, at at the the peak of what prayer can become, is an experience of being in the presence of the God of all grace, of all forgiveness, of all peace, of all joy, and of all love. It is a moment that turns from communication, that turns from asking certain things, that turns from trying to hear certain things, to just enjoying the presence of God. I can think of the most powerful times of prayer in my life. There was a moment where I was teaching and I had some parents who were not in love with me and things were um, really upsetting uh, in, inside of my heart and my mind about things that were being said. And I can remember um, going back to my apartment and getting in a time of prayer, which was suggested to me, great advice, and I reached that, that moment, right, where all of a sudden I wasn't praying about, God, just destroy these parents. They don't know what they're talking about. God, help me kind of get perspective about the situation so that I can kind of have peace. To all of a sudden, I was just sitting there. And I was in his presence. And I knew that I was loved. And I knew that I had been given the gift of eternal life. And every problem that I had melted away. Every goal that I had melted away. And it was just that moment of being in in the presence of God. I think at its highest, that's what prayer can be like. Perhaps you have a relationship that's kind of like that. Maybe with your spouse or a best friend where, where the stories are done, the talking's over, the laughing has stopped. And now you're just enjoying their presence. You're just swinging, watching the sunset. And there's no words being spoken. There's just this back and forth of loving presence. I think at its highest, that's what what prayer can be. And and as children of God, who should be people of prayer, we, we need to be intentional about prayer. My professional pastoral advice is that you'll never accidentally become good at praying. You're never gonna stumble and fall down and wake up and be like, wow, I'm a prayer warrior. That was impressive. How did that happen? It's something you have to be intentional about. It's something you have to to plan sometimes. It's something you have to have accountability with. It's something that you need to be evaluating yourself uh, constantly. What's my prayer life like? Am I getting the results out of my prayer life that I would like? 
am I reaching this point where it's less me just rote talking to someone and, and, and more me coming into this experience of the presence of God? Is our prayer life preparing us for the task ahead of us? Are we going to be able to attend that meeting? Are we going to be able to talk to that person? Are we going to be able to make that decision in a Christ-like manner because we've been in prayer? Jesus says, when you pray, this act of righteousness um, is not an option for the children of God. And there is and have always been two types of prayers. You have spontaneous prayers. These are prayers that you make up. These are prayers that happen in the moment. These are prayers that you use your own language for. And then there are planned prayers. Now, we're a Protestant church. Many of us come from a Protestant background, which means we're less familiar with planned prayers or fixed hour prayers or prayers that are written for us than we are with spontaneous prayers, prayers we come up with in the moment. But there's a long tradition, not just in certain denominations, but even throughout the Old Testament, of having a planned, fixed-hour pattern of prayer throughout your day. And so as far back as we can tell, the Jewish people, God's earliest group of people, they had this threefold structure into their day. They would pray at evening, they would pray at morning, and they would pray around noon or around three o'clock, midday prayer. They start with the evening because the Jewish day starts at the end of the day. Um, and it's easy to see this in Scripture, although it's hard, it's easy to miss it as well. But if you look for it, you can see it. In Psalm 55, the psalmist says, Evening and morning I utter my prayers, and God hears me. In the book of Daniel, we're told Daniel, despite the pressure, still gets on his knees three times a day to pray and praise the Lord. The New Testament uh, apostles seem to follow this. In Acts 3, Peter and John, we're told, are going to the temple at around 3 o'clock for their midday prayers. Seems like they're still following this pattern, morning, afternoon, evening. The Didica, which is an early Christian document, 1st, 2nd century, um, says that Christians practice this thing called um, reciting the Lord's Prayer, which we'll get to next week, three times a day in the morning, in the afternoon, and in the evening. This kind of threefold structure has kind of always been around. And for a Jewish person, for Jesus in the first century, um, this would have been in the morning you would recite the Shema, which is from Deuteronomy chapter 4. You would recite the Ten Commandments, and then you would recite a version of another prayer called the Amidah. Um, So the Shema, if you're not familiar with it, goes like this, Hear, O Israel, the Lord... Our God, the Lord, is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and all of your soul and all of your might. And they'd read the Ten Commandments. And then a version of the Amidah might go like this. Grant us, our Father, the knowledge that comes from thee and understanding and discernment that comes from thy Torah. Blessed art thou who grantest us knowledge. And this would kind of shape their day. This would prepare them to be the people of God as they were called to be. And in the mid-afternoon prayer, it wasn't quite as long. Um, usually you would just pray the Amada um, in the, the middle of the day. Um, which brings us actually to Jesus' first rule here. He has two rules about praying. He tells us two things we shouldn't do when it comes to praying. While the people of God are called to be people of prayer, there are two things we shouldn't do with those practices of prayer. The first, he says, is don't pray for show. Don't pray in order to be seen. Don't pray in order to get attention. Again, just like giving to the needy, if you pray so that people will be impressed with you, Jesus says that's your reward. 
which can be good, right? I mean, you can make a lot of money from being a good prayer and impressing people and looking like you're really smart and really faithful and things like that. You can get a lot of applause. You can get a lot of attention. Your ego can be stroked by praying in front of people. But Jesus says, look, that's, that's what you've got. And if that's okay with you, I guess fine. But he says, but you could, though, if you prayed not trying to get attention, if you prayed in secret, you could get a reward from your father. A reward that perhaps is beyond what you could ever even imagine in terms of life and peace and joy. For Jesus, the father is the most generous, loving God that one could possibly imagine. And to choose between a reward of human attention and a reward from the Father is like playing in, in mud and building pies versus going to a holiday at the sea. Jesus says, yeah, you can, you can pray like that if you want, but that's your reward. Or he says you can go in secret. And your Father who sees in secret, he will reward you. This is probably the historical context for what he's talking about. These hypocrites who pray at the synagogue and on street corners. Um, what, what we think is going on is people would position themselves for this midday prayer. Uh, and so it happens at the same time every day. Some people think noon. More people think three o'clock or so. And so your morning and evening prayer would most likely be with your family, be at home. Um, but some people, for attention, these hypocrites, Jesus calls them, would make sure they were at a key prime location when it came time for this midday prayer. And when noon hit or three o'clock hit, they were at the synagogue or they were on the street corner and they had an audience and they were about to blow their minds with a prayer. And Jesus says, if you, you do that, that's the reward that you get. He says, it'd be better for you to go all the way back home, go into the room, shut the door and pray by yourself and then you would get a reward. Jesus is saying prayer shouldn't be for show. He's not against praying out loud. He's not against leading people in prayer. He's against positioning yourself so that prayer um, is an attention getter, is something that you do for show. Some ways that perhaps we might fail when we lead others in prayer. And now, I've done some of these. Um, I know for a lot of people, praying in public is a very uh, anxiety-inducing uh, thought um, and, and something that, that we have to work towards and um, something that just for some people uh, is something that's hard to, to do. And so please know this. If you've ever prayed in front of the church, if you've been here long enough, you've heard me say weird stuff while I pray and make mistakes and stutter and things like that. I think my favorite uh, years ago was I said something to the effect of like, let the blood of our sins pay for uh, <laughs> the... There's something of that nature. I, I miss blood and sins, and it was all confused. The theology there was way backwards. And I was like, all right, let's stop and just pray again. We'll just end that one. But please know, if you've prayed in public and if you're anxious about that kind of thing, what I'm about to say, even if maybe you've done this, I'm not thinking about you, okay? I have not made a list for years of people who've prayed in front of the church and been like, one day, subtly, I'm going to write a sermon and call them out. This is not about you. This is a gracious place. This is church. This is where we learn how to pray. This is where we learn how to pray with each other. This is where we encourage each other to pray. But some ways perhaps that we can pray in public and pray leading others that wouldn't draw attention to ourselves. One would be we can't make prayer into an example of our own faith, our own knowledge. 
which can be easy sometimes to do, is to take a prayer that you get to lead in public and really use it as like, a, you know how many degrees I have? You know how many big Greek words that I know? You know how faithful I've been? Prayer shouldn't be about that. It, it also shouldn't be evangelism. Prayer is not a time to try to reach out to certain people. I don't know if you've ever seen or, or, or experienced this in, in practice, right? Maybe you know something about someone, the rest of the group doesn't, and so you're subtly addressing that in your prayer. And Lord, I pray that you'd be with people who aren't married yet and are insecure about that, and that you would just give them the, the peace of heart to still trust you, right? That's not, the, that's not the point of prayer. Don't use prayer to evangelize. Don't use it to counsel other people. Or I'm surely you've heard this, right? Don't um, uh, make prayer into a sermon. <laughs> prayer is not the time to preach, right? Here's a key that, that I'm always looking out for in terms of how I pray, right? I'm not evaluating other people, but in terms of if I'm praying in public, prayer should always and only be addressed to God, the moment that I or anyone else starts talking about God, what we're doing is less than praying. And it's really easy to do this kind of thing, right? To turn our prayers into kind of a sermon, and kind of a, a lesson. Um, but the moment our prayers anything other than an exclusive address to God, I think it stops being uh, a full prayer. I think we fall into the temptation of praying for show. And then lastly, Jesus says here, prayer um, doesn't need to be impressive or exhaustive. I love this part of the passage. It says, when you pray, don't heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think they'll be heard for their many words. Don't be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Now, the historical context behind this is actually really fascinating. Um, so we live in a monotheistic world where we're used to the idea that there's really only one God, even though we understand the Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, um, but there's not lots of gods we always have to be worried about. Back in the day, though, in a polytheistic world, there's hundreds of gods that you have to constantly be on the lookout for. Because you might not know which one is not a big fan of you right now. You might have accidentally upset one of these gods. In the ancient, ancient Near East, about half of your day would be spent in rituals trying to appease all the different gods you came encounter with. The god of the trees, the god of the river, the god of food, the god of the skies. It was a pretty confusing and anxiety-inducing world. We often don't realize what a revolutionary concept monotheism is. There's just one god. All you have to do is worry about pleasing him and obeying him. Um, but lots of Gentiles, lots of un-Jewish people, um, were under the impression that they needed to impress whatever god or gods they were praying to, whether that was by quality or rhetoric. We know from writings and inscriptions um, that non-Jewish prayers indeed used lots of formulas. They used lots of long and complicated words. They would repeat over and over in the anxiety to persuade some god or goddess to be favorable to them. And note that these prayers are, are accompanied by a note of uncertainty by a sense of anxiety. Um, there's lots of divinities in this ancient world, and nobody quite knew which one might need pacifying next or with what formula. And so I've actually got a prayer here, um, and this is a, a good example of uh, what might be the historical context which he's talking about when the Gentiles Babylon in their prayers. This is a prayer to the goddess Diana. Um, it's a little long, and I'll show you at the end when to really pay attention here. 
Under Diana's protection, we pure girls and boys, we pure boys and girls, we sing of Diana. O daughter of Latona, greatest child of great Jove, whose mother gave birth near the Delian olive, mistress of mountains and the green groves, the secret glades and the sounding streams, you called Juno Lucina in childbirth's pains, you called all-powerful trivia and Luna of counterfeit daylight, your monthly passage measures the course of the year. You fill the rustic farmer's roof, roof with good crops. Now watch this phrase. Take whatever sacred name pleases you. <laughs> if you're able to pay attention, they went through lots of different names for Diana, including who her parents were, things that she did. Take whatever sacred name pleases you and be a sweet help to the people of Rome as you have been of old. It's not unusual. People thought they needed to impress this certain God. People would throw out just name after name, compliment after compliment to try to hit all arrows that were possible before their God would listen. Um, there were convictions among the pagans that the gods would be reluctant to hear prayers unless they were long, unless you had proven yourself to be sincere in confession, praise. Um, you had to kind of prove yourself. In contrast to this, what Jesus is saying is actually a theological point about who God is. He's saying that God is not the type of God that needs you to impress him when you pray. God is not the type of God who needs you to be exhaustive when you pray. He needs you to tell him every detail about every situation. God is, we might say, not a reluctant listener. God is not a distracted listener. We have to get his attention. God is not a reactive listener in the sense that only if you get his attention and get him certain information will he begin to work. He's always at work. He's always aware of what's going on. And so Jesus says, look, just give your request. Just speak to God. Don't use these fancy words. Many of us have probably also been in an experience or seen someone pray who all of a sudden takes on a different tone of voice when they start to pray, as if a, a holy tone, right, will get God's attention. Or they're, they're kind of ticks of speech that people have when they pray. They'll say like, Heavenly Father, every three words. Heavenly Father, as we come to you, Heavenly Father, please bless us, Heavenly Father. Again, I'm not trying to make fun of anybody or things like that, but we, we kind of get into this idea that we can't just straight up talk to God. That we can't just be ordinary, usual people. That somehow there's some formula that would make God hear us. Somehow there's some kind of religious fervor we have to build up in our hearts for God to, to start to care about, for God to make action about. Jesus says you don't need to make these long, impressive prayers. You don't need to give God all the information. He knows it all. He's a good God, and he is God. And there might be a paradox here. I've had people ask me if Jesus is saying to pray shorter prayers, and if he knows what you need before you ask him, why even ask at all? I mean, what's the point of prayer, right? If Jesus here is saying, look, you have this long prayer request. God's got lots of things to do, so just get to it. He already knows what you need. He's already got the list, okay? So just make it short and make it sweet and make it simple. Um, I think the paradox is this. When you're relieved of the necessity of saying much, you experience the freedom to be able to experience much. Does this make sense? When you're freed from the necessity of saying much, you're freed for the experience of much. 
The analogy I would use is that of a counselor or a best friend. If you've ever been to counseling, like me, spent years in counseling, as healthy as I am, attributable to my best counselors, as unhealthy as I am, we'll blame the bad ones. When I go to a counselor, they honestly, typically, if we've you know, had a relationship and had some sessions before, they know just about everything there is to know about me, at least in whatever situation we're working on. In fact, it's probably a safe bet to say they know more about me. That's their job, right? They can read into my body language and the way I present certain information and things of that nature. And it's precisely because they know so much about me that I can sit on the couch and just word vomit and not have to feel the need to qualify every statement or to give this long, rambling backstory to every feeling that I have. I can just sit there and be like, this happened and this happened and this made me feel this way and I wish this was going to happen. I need help doing this. Or a best friend who knows you. Who maybe knows more about you than you do. Who knows all the needs that you have. It's that best friend that maybe you're freest with to just talk. To just experience love and trust. To enjoy one another's presence. It's these personal relationships. Precisely with the people who know us best and sometimes know our needs better than we do, we talk the most freely with. The fact that God already knows our needs encourages us all the more freely to come and to talk about it. Prayer is not an intelligence briefing to God. As if He doesn't know what's going on in your life or the lives of people around you. It's a worshipful conversation with God. We're liberated by Jesus to pray more simply, more freely. We're freed from spending hours upon hours upon hours in prayer. Not to say that we can't spend hours and hours and hours in prayer, but it's not a necessity. It's a freedom. Do you see the difference? We don't pray in hours and hours and hours because somehow we feel like that's the only way God will hear us. You find a person who prays for two, three hours a day, you'll find a person who loves praying for two or three hours a day. So they're communicating with and experiencing the presence of a loving God. And we remember that when we pray, our spontaneous prayers, that we join God himself in praying. Scripture tells us the Holy Spirit prays for us. The Holy Spirit kind of groans on our behalf when we don't even have the words for what we need or want to express, the Spirit communicates that to the Father's heart. I mean, how freeing is that? That I don't even need to articulate exactly how I'm feeling. That I don't need to come up with the best solution for the problem to give to God so that He can perform that. I can just say, look, here's the problem. I'm freed to, to not try to be fancy, to not try to be impressive, to not try to be exhaustive. And so this morning, I think, as we begin a couple of weeks talking about prayer, I think maybe it's a good time to evaluate our prayer life. What, is, what does our prayer life look like? I know certain pastors, certainly I've fallen into this trap occasionally, who, who pray once a week. Can you guess when that is? On Sunday on stage. <laughs> And I know Christians, good Christians, good faith Christians, who can all of a sudden wake up one day and realize, hey, I haven't prayed in like a month, two months, three months. 
Again, spiritual disciplines don't happen by accident, like prayer. You have to constantly be evaluating yourself. So what's your, your prayer life like? Are you satisfied with it? Our prayer life can probably always improve, just like anything in our life, but, but are you satisfied with it? Are you, getting, are you getting out of it what we're promised to get out of it in the Scriptures? For me, what I've found works is, is to go with this kind of spontaneous and planned prayer format. So I, I pray three times a day on schedule in the morning, in the afternoon, and then in the evening. And then I pray spontaneously throughout the day. Um, my planned prayers come from certain different books. So I've got the Valley of Vision. It's a collection of Puritan prayer books. Um, I highly recommend it. Sometimes they've got all kinds of prayers for all kinds of different things. Sometimes the words get a little like Old English Puritan-y, but it's not too bad. Um, high schoolers easily understand what, what, what it's getting at. And then usually my go-to is called the Common Prayer Pocket Edition, a liturgy for ordinary radicals. So this is a morning, an evening, uh, and a mid-afternoon um, prayer for you. Um, and uh, what I've found is when I tried to pray regularly by myself, I'm just not smart enough. I don't have the right words. I don't have the right sentiment. I'm not always in the right place in my day, in my mind, in my energy, in my attention, in my focus to pray the way that that reading and using other people's prayers to launch into a relationship with the Lord works for me. And so I plan out my prayers and I'm I'm pretty ADHD and I'm in a distracted world and so if I'm not praying within a couple hours while I wake up my mind's on other things and I'm not going to be prepared when I talk to you later that day. I'm not going to be prepared to do that work. I'm not going to be prepared to, to, to preach that sermon. I'm not going to be prepared to make that decision. And by 3 p.m., man, I'm either super distracted by something going on in the world or more likely napping. One of the two, though. Big nap fan. And I need to get back on track. And then I found the evening prayers. They help me process the day that's gone before me. They help me not repress certain emotions or situations. They help me process them. They help me sleep better, if I'm honest. They help me wake up better, if I'm honest. And then here's what my prayer looks like in in real life, spontaneously. Um, I'm in the office. I'm working on something. I hear a siren. Look out the office. See an ambulance. I go, God, be with the person in the ambulance. Be with the doctors. And I keep typing my email. Because guess what? One, I don't know a lot about the situation. Two, God knows everything about that situation. I don't need to stop my entire day, right, and go into a little closet that I've prepared and kneel down on a special rug and say a 30-minute prayer for a person in an ambulance. Or I'll be talking to someone, I'll hear of a need, and as I'm walking away, I'll be like, God, will you just be with that person? I don't have to babble on. I don't have to use fancy words. I can just speak. I can just think. I can just groan. I can just... I can just have this this urge for God to do something, for him to show up in some way. And I think that God accepts that. I think that's what Jesus is teaching here for us. So evaluate your prayer life. And, And maybe if you're like me, maybe you need to add some planning to it. You need to add some intentionality to it. Maybe add some accountability to it. I would say that we learn how to pray best together. 
with other people. So when I pray out of the common prayer book, I'm praying with others. There's lots of people all over the world at the same time praying these prayers, and the people and traditions these prayers came from, I'm praying with. Um, Praying with your small group, praying with an accountability person that you have, praying with some friends of yours. That's how you learn how to pray, praying with a mentor. I encourage you to make prayer not an individualistic thing. If you're married, pray together. If you have a family, pray together. That's also a built-in accountability thing. You know, we get distracted in our world. We get discouraged. Sometimes we get embarrassed by maybe how long it's been or what our prayer life looks like. I'd encourage you to adopt a weekly prayer practice this week. Maybe you've got prayer down and that's okay, and so just keep going forward. But maybe for a week, if, if there's some room for improvement, maybe adopt something new. Maybe adopt a weekly prayer practice. Then come back next Sunday as we think about the Lord's Prayer and how Jesus teaches us how to pray and what to pray. As we continue to consider um, how to pray faithfully as the people of God. Will you pray with me? Father, we thank you for um, your goodness, for your love for us. We thank you that you know our needs and so that we're free to come to you. And we do come to you, Father. We come to you with requests. We come to you with problems. We come to you with our sins and confessions. We come to you with our praises. And we come wanting to be in your presence. We, want, we come wanting to, to know and be known by you. We come wanting to experience your love and your grace. We come wanting such a close encounter with you that our problems and our fears and our goals and our ambitions and our calendars and our to-do lists, that they all wash away. And the pure enjoyment, worship, awe of who you are and what you've done for us. It's in the name of the Father and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, that a lot of God's people this morning prayed together saying,